0: Hi, this is Josh Levine. I'm the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, which you probably know already, but I don't want to be uh, self-important. Maybe you didn't know that. I wanted to introduce um, this podcast that we have in our feed today. It is an episode of I Have to Ask, which is an interview show hosted by my colleague Isaac Chotner, known for his great uh, interviews in text. He now is doing them in podcast form. This episode is an interview with Ethan Sherwood Strauss. He writes about the Golden State Warriors for ESPN. We've had him on Hang Up a bunch of times. If you've liked those interviews, you'll like this one. Maybe you'll even like this one better because Isaac's a pretty good interviewer. Uh, Enjoy. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask podcast. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ethan Sherwood Strauss, a writer for ESPN who covers the Golden State Warriors the most popular basketball team of the last several years. The NBA playoffs are upon us, and while in this conversation Strauss and I did discuss some basketball, we also discussed a bunch of other things that should be interesting even if you're not a sports addict. Like how often sports commentators should talk politics, how superstar players like Steph Curry and Kevin Durant interact with each other, and how endorsement deals can make team chemistry more difficult. Ethan, joined me in studio in Berkeley, and here is our conversation. Ethan, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I I wanted to start by asking how you began to cover the NBA.
1: Um, It started after college. I found a job with the NBA in actually uh, the other side, uh, the PR division of the NBA. My job back in uh, uh, 2008, 2009 was to wake up every day at 4 a.m. And when I say every day, I mean every day, I mean every day of the week. So I didn't have a social life. It was a really horrible job in many ways. But I would wake up at 4 a.m. and my job was to read literally everything written about the NBA that was available on the Internet and to send a memo to David Stern and everybody else uh, just as a summary and a rundown of what it was. And back then you could actually do that. It's it's impossible now uh, before really the explosion of social media um, and just the proliferation of sites. Even
0: ESPN.com, I guess, was a smaller site
1: at that point. Definitely. Uh, So that was my job every day. And uh, in doing that, I thought, man, it seems like it's a lot of fun to write about the NBA. Um, It seems like it's a lot more fun than what I'm doing. What I'm doing totally sucks. So the last thing uh, that I did for the NBA before I quit was to go to the NBA draft and essentially usher Ricky Rubio around It would be my job to drag him around uh, by the lapel and make him do interview after interview after interview after interview. Um, And it is just a crazy scene. So then how did ESPN find you? Um, I wrote about what happened. It got picked up by Deadspin and it it was a fairly cynical uh retelling because rubio was so sad and he wanted to just you know where is my mom where is my family and i just had to be this cruel uh enforcer of the uh, death march of media uh for 3 hours and so i wrote about that i think some people saw that that was the first thing that really got my name out there a little bit and um at the same time i was doing other media i was working for salon
0: and 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 when did you start covering the warriors
1: well war- How did you become ESPN's Warriors guy? So Warriors World uh tweeted out that they needed a writer. And I was watching the Warriors at that time. Um I was very frustrated watching the Don Nelson years. And so I said, Okay, I'll do it for free. And the first two articles, they might have looked over it and edited it, but then they they threw it up there, and then there was enough of a trust that I kept doing it, and then one day uh Rashid Rashid Malek of Warriors World said, hey, uh, we can get a credential because back then uh, they had such little coverage. They had no attention on them, really, that, you know, they'll, they'll take whatever they could get. And it eventually turned into doing uh, freelance work. And then there was a greater trust gain there. And it, it turned into something else as the Warriors got Uh, got good. Now, uh, it was a great environment to make mistakes, by the way, before that, because nobody was around. So is this podcast, so keep going. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm being a little long-winded. But, you know, I would do things because I didn't know anything. I had no formal training. There's this tradition of coming up through the newspapers. Um, I didn't have it. I would do things like I would take a picture of the whiteboard and the plays. You're not supposed to do that. That is very much—that might even be illegal. It is not to be done um, I, I didn't understand uh, how to communicate in the NBA. I still might not. I think the first question I ever asked Keith Smart was, uh, what was his predilection on something? And I, I had this look of shock. Everybody roared with laughter.
0: In a, in a way, I guess you lucked out in the sense that the Warriors quickly by 2014, 2015, had become one of the most popular franchises in sports and one that I assume people at ESPN were extremely interested in having a lot of coverage. of.
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, I got tremendously lucky, and that's why it's funny. There's this uh, idea that the journalists shouldn't root for the team. Um, And certainly, I don't think you should outwardly, but internally, it would have been highly illogical uh, to root for failure. It would have been illogical because really their success is the reason why I can pay my bills. Now I don't necessarily feel that way, but certainly back then it was the difference between doing this for a living and not.
0: I I think people who who follow sports often wonder about sports journalism. To what degree... The work that you do is facilitated by developing relationships with players, in this case, players on the Warriors. And to what degree it's working through the organization, working through the coaches, getting people's agents and managers to help help facilitate access. And to what degree it's actually you building relationships with the 15 guys on the roster? I
1: think everybody has their own path. Um, it's about whoever you might just vibe with, whoever you might have a relationship with and it's happenstance. I it's something I've always been uncomfortable with because I don't think of myself I'm not a tremendously charismatic person. There are people who walk into the locker room and uh they've got that thing, that thing that would make you a good salesman. I don't think I have that. I I just I I'm almost better off. I want to write about this. Here's a topic I want to write about. Um, I need to talk to X, X, and X person. I I almost write about these things in the way I would if I had no relationships. Uh, It just so happens that being around and having that familiarity means that they're more likely to call back than if I was just a random person.
0: I I was curious. The time you've been covering the team, a lot of the guys on the team, such as Draymond Green and Clay Thompson, have gone from being basically unknown to being celebrities. Steph Curry has gone from being a somewhat famous player to being – One of the most famous, if not the second most famous basketball player in the world. And I was wondering to what degree you've witnessed with athletes that this level of fame changes them and their interactions with reporters.
1: Uh, It definitely it it can't not change you. It can't not. Right. Steph, maybe less so this year. Was living in just a bizarre bubble where he would walk around and people would jump out of the bushes. I remember that happened at UCSD when we were down there for a practice where uh, this guy just jumps out of the bushes to try to get an audience with Steph, and there, there's just weirdness flying at him all the time. And Ralph Walker, his bodyguard, would say, I, "I'm, I'm." pretty much bodyguarding 1985 Michael Jackson. There's that level of fame. I think to his credit, it hasn't uh, corrupted his personality necessarily. Um, And I would say the same to Clay. I think Clay is pretty much the same guy in many respects I remember coming into the league. He's a little more confident um, in expressing himself. He would never want to talk to the media, even if he scored 30 points. He would try to sneak out the door. I remember asking him back then, why don't you ever want to talk to media even if you do well. Players might have an adversarial relationship with the media, uh, but when they succeed, they tend to want to bask in that glow at the podium. I know David Lee did. He would love to speak in front of the banner. Uh, Clay looked at me and sheepishly he said, I'm not good at it, and that that was so true. Uh, he didn't have that confidence. Now, I think that he finds it annoying to deal with media, but I think he's quite confident expressing himself. Draymond's personality, I think, has changed in, in many a way because he never anticipated becoming uh, an all-star or a celebrity, and it's a, it's a lot to handle. And I think I might have written about some of the wages of that um, in an article this, this preseason. I think that's the biggest impact as far as uh, the persona is probably Draymond.
0: I want to ask you a couple questions about sports journalism. There was a piece on The Ringer by Brian Curtis, someone I think we both know, which basically stated that the era of what what he called just stick to sports is over. And the idea there was that when sports journalists weigh in on political topics, they're often told on social media or elsewhere just stick to sports. Brian's argument was that with the Trump administration with the politicization of so much stuff with this incredibly controversial administration in Washington that it was going to be very hard for sports journalists to avoid talking about political issues especially because athletes themselves were speaking up so much coaches etc and i was wondering what you thought about that some of your colleagues have expressed sentiments about the muslim ban on twitter and elsewhere and and so i was wondering how how you saw your job in this in this strange new world
1: yeah that's there's a lot there Um, Do I think that you have a duty to talk about it? I don't necessarily think you have a duty to talk about it. I think that there may have been, and to be clear, I mean, I don't think I'm shocking anybody. I live on the Oakland-Berkeley border. I'm I'm liberal and I vote Democrat. I don't think that's shocking anybody. Um, But that would sort of be assumed about my stances. I'm not sure what I'd be contributing if I talked a lot about it. I think that somebody like Steve Kerr, probably a bigger mouthpiece, a bigger impact if people are asking him, and to be clear, they're asking him. Um, But should I just otherwise just express myself and express all my political opinions? That to me seems like a bit of mission creep that might even be backfiring.
0: What about just this idea that do you sense that you may have to write more about politics just because the way things are heading, the way people like Steve Kerr have spoken out, some NBA players have spoken out? I mean, I don't know what you hear from your editors or what you get from, from ESPN, the sort of feedback you get. But is there some sense you think that your job and the job of people like you in the coming year or year, four years, God knows how long, will will take on somewhat of a different mandate
1: than it otherwise would have? Uh, It will, just insofar as what the athletes are saying, because they will speak out on these issues and there's interest in that. And even if people tell them to stick to sports, as they will. Um, There will be a reaction to their saying that. There will be an import to it. There was a lot of uh, scrutiny of how, uh, how Steph Curry felt about the bathroom ban in North Carolina, for instance. Uh, people want to hear from these guys. So I think that that will become more of my job as time goes forward, um, certainly. Now the question of whether it should be more of my job that I express my personal opinions about it. I don't know. I don't know if that's part of your job or you're doing that because you feel a duty to or it's cathartic to do so. Um, and that's just the lines have become so blurred on that. And I feel very divided. I feel that uh, there, there is that meme, right? There is that trope within uh, liberalism, especially now that silence is violence or silence is complicity. I think that's an overreach. I don't think that's the case. And if you're talking all the time, then it does blunt your ability to say certain things on on certain issues. And it's especially disorienting right now because it seems like there's a new thing every day, um, which is rather unfortunate. So I guess I'll take this opportunity to say that um, I find this administration terrifying. Um, I think that the person running the country is uh, I mean, he is a reality TV game show host effectively. Um, who has the ability to end life on the planet. That, that is a suboptimal situation. Uh, but I'm also at a loss as to how specifically using whatever megaphone I have to do anything about that. What well, you
0: just said, he may resign now.
1: That- like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's going yeah, yeah. This this basketball writer uh, from a Berkeley studio just criticized me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna quit. The uh, the, the Republicans are gonna impeach him if he doesn't quit uh, by the power of my uh, by the power of my argument. I'm also, sen- I gotta say, I'm also sensitive to the other side of it too, where I think that there is something legitimate to the idea of the customer saying this isn't what I want from you. I understand that argument. I understand both sides of it. It is not fun nowadays to say I understand both sides of an argument. I think that it's far more comfortable to be an extremist in many respects uh, because you're not betraying anybody. Um,
0: Have you noticed being around NBA players and coaches? I mean, it does seem that the NBA, more than other sports, athletes are speaking out. And I don't know if this is the
1: demographics
0: of basketball compared to a sport like football. It totally
1: is. It totally is. I mean, it's. And perhaps the viewership of those sports. Oh, definitely. The average, I mean, we've looked at the survey data at ESPN. There have been other surveys on it. The average uh, NBA basketball fan is a votes Democrat. You know, that's not particularly shocking. I mean, uh, the demographics are different than for other sports. 45% uh, to maybe even 50%, depending on the survey you look at, um, of basketball fans in the United States are black. It's it's a different demographic, so you have more room perhaps, and you're going to get more hasanas, uh if you say the things that Steve Kerr has said and that Greg Popovich has said and Stan Van Gundy as well uh, than if you said them as a college football coach. So. It it definitely opens up more leeway to express sentiments that are anti-Trump. Some would argue that it also means that you can't express other sentiments and those are verboten, but that's, that's a different conversation, I guess.
0: Yeah, you've seen a lot with people like Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, uh, Chris Paul, I believe, different players speaking out on political issues like gun violence, uh, issues like Black Lives Matter. It does seem that that's come much more from the NBA than other sports.
1: It, it definitely does. And and to be clear, the median NBA fan probably either likes that or is OK with it. I get the other side of it. I do. I get the, the fan when I have said something political who uh, does have that stick to sports mentality because we're just it's such an on demand society right now. And they look to you. For a specific thing, and you're, it's almost like you're a vending machine, and it's almost like they you know they selected B3 for you for the candy bar and you gave them a sardine. Like, I, I understand um, the frustration in that, and I feel it sometimes too. you know I have to be totally honest on this. I uh, listen to various people on various sports platforms, many of them intelligent, and they will be talking about the political state of things and while I appreciate that they are full people, that they are not myopic, that they care about the world around them, I have political podcasts I listen to. That's where I go to for that. So I feel it a little bit. Um, I feel it a little bit too, and that's one of the reasons why I can sympathize with that that sentiment. Because um, even if I would want the people talking about sports to have a conscience, I'm not necessarily visiting to them uh, visiting them for that at that moment.
0: To what degree has your job been changed by? Uh, the degree to which athletes have been using social media to express themselves. There have been some NBA related controversies involving social media, players posting on social media. To, to what degree do you think that's changed the way you do your job at all?
1: Well, I'll answer your question, but I'm I'm curious what, what were the controversies exactly?
0: Rajon Rondo posted on Instagram oh, something yeah. about his teammates. Um, My vets. My vets, yes, very slam
1: uh, poetry sort of uh, sort of cadence to it. Yes, yes,
0: criticizing some people on his team, which is now the Chicago Bulls. Uh, LeBron James over the past year has. Posted some, you could say, passive aggressive or just aggressive things about his teammates and their effort and about uh, the ownership of the managerial structure of the Cavs, his team, so on. So I I was just wondering, it does seem that athletes have this way of speaking out very directly, which may change the way the media covers them.
1: Yeah, it's kind of fostered a a state of hypervigilance about a lot of uh, things that might be silly, but just the news can come from anywhere at any point. Um, you know, you might have been covering the beat in in Chicago, and you weren't thinking to yourself, "I need to really be scouring Rajon Rondo's Instagram posts." That's where the big news is going to happen. But that's changed things, and it's in some ways changed things for the worse. It, it provides a lot of fodder and a lot of entertainment. Um, I was entertained by the Rajon Rondo post, but I don't think that it's fun. Uh, for the Beat Reporter these days, all, all, I'm told by Beat Reporters who, who did it in the 90s that it was a lot more fun back then, that you had all this free time. You did your game notes. You BS'd on the phone with different executives, and you covered the game, and for the most part, that was that. Now, you just are constantly with a head on a swivel in the digital landscape, and um, I think that it's great for the fan, but maybe not great for the journalist.
0: I want to ask a question about the Warriors specifically. I know you're interested in shoes and shoe deals as a uh, subject matter that fascinates you. There are two players on the Warriors, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, two of the five best players in the league probably. And they each have shoe deals and clothing lines. I don't know what the proper term is with different companies. Uh,
1: Well, yeah, they they have different brands. They have
0: different brands. And there's been some speculation that – Steph Curry's line, Under Armour, was hurt by the arrival of Kevin Durant, who has a Nike line.
1: I don't even think that's speculation. I just think that that's the case. Okay, that uh, yeah. that's the case. Yeah.
0: And I-, I was just wondering, in terms of the way locker rooms work now, to what degree player interactions, player relationships, things like that are being determined by things off the court, like two clashing— Shoe deal lines yeah. and
1: so on. Oh, definitely, it's a factor in the social dynamic of the NBA. There are Nike events, um, and LeBron, uh, LeBron for Nike. I mean, that's part of his his overall network that that he's a Nike guy and that he'll be hanging out with Nike uh, Nike guys. Um, but it doesn't always facilitate a friendship. Uh, one of the more interesting cold wars i think um and not too many people talked about it was between uh kobe and lebron who never appeared in a nike ad together despite both being nike Uh, when they did it was as puppets and uh in kobe's last year there was an all roster spot as it's called where they appeared in the same ad but not together that would have been an obvious thing to do if you're trying to expand the brand of nike as a whole but all of these guys are corporations within the corporation Uh, competing for attention um, and competing uh, to be the face of the franchise, the face of Nike in the way Michael Jordan was. So it's a huge, huge factor um, in sort of the – uh, the the dynamics of the NBA that you don't necessarily see right on the court, but you you see it if you know what to look for. You know, uh, right after winning the championship, um, immediately LeBron and Kyrie they they just instantly put on Nike shirts. That was the, the teammates, not necessarily, but the two of them, boom! Like they are focused on it, and in many ways, it's a little bit like a Westworld, where. That's the game behind the game. That's maybe even the bigger game, and the game of basketball is just a means to that end. And
0: do people like Curry or LeBron have someone sort of nearby or in the locker room telling them, you need to do this, you need to put on a Nike shirt after you win, or do you think that this has become internalized because this is all part of the business that these guys have and they know what they're supposed to do?
1: Well, I think a lot of it's internalized. I don't know who told them that. I do know that Lynn Merritt, the— Big-time Nike power broker was there. I saw him and LeBron celebrating outside the locker room immediately after winning the championship. That was a huge coup for Nike on a variety of levels. Um, But... The players in many ways, and I've, I've written this, are more loyal to the brand than they are to the team. And it makes sense. The brand is something that's more likely to celebrate them as an individual uh, than the team is. And it's also just so much in that tradition of Michael Jordan, uh, who, by the way, remains a Nike employee long after he bitterly divorced from the Chicago Bulls and won't show up to their functions. And Michael Jordan in a given year um annually makes more money in a year than he made from all his earnings combined in the NBA together. So uh, it makes sense that the brand might be the real team in all of this. LeBron might leave the Cavs. He might do it. Maybe he'll wake up one day and that will be the interesting move to make. He's never leaving Nike. That's never happening. He has a lifetime deal. So... That's why it's the real – that's why it's the real team. That's why it's the real game.
0: Do you think that there's a way in which this undermines anything on the court or undermines players' relationships with their teams or do you think it's the business
1: and it works pretty smoothly? We we saw an object lesson in that. Now, we don't see this sort of collision happen often because Nike is the main superpower and there really isn't another superpower – um, out there in the NBA landscape, they have 70% of NBA players, but we saw it happen once it was Shaq and Penny and uh, how did that go uh, between between Reebok and Nike you, you had Shaq taking a shot at Penny Hardaway's shoes um, in an advertisement they
0: were that, teammates at the time in the late 90s yes, mid to late yeah, 90s. Yeah,
1: yeah, I guess we should give that expository the played yeah. for the Orlando Magic. It was this ascendant team. They were the two superstars. they were going to win every championship. That's that it was just inevitable. And it just ended in a fairly bitter divorce with Shaq leaving for the Los Angeles Lakers. And there was a lot of tension over that Shaq had Reebok and Penny had Nike. And that, that was an object lesson in that, how that can go. Now, it seems like Steph and KD are handling it a lot better. They have more maturity uh, than those two guys, I would think. Um, but it is a source of tension. It is something to be worked out.
0: Um, I want to ask you quickly before we move on that you work for a company that reports on sports and also provides sports. ESPN shows a lot of games, they but they also cover sports as you write about the Warriors as well as ESPN shows Warrior games. Do you ever feel a tension there in your role because of the multiple roles that ESPN has?
1: Um, yeah, I guess it's an inherent conflict of interest that cannot be avoided, right? Um, I, I haven't really felt attention in terms of anything I write about. Um, I, I haven't felt that happen. But I do sometimes wonder if things I'm talking about, let's say it's interest in the league. Let's say I'm just saying that, hey, ratings are down, and I'm talking about ratings on ESPN games. There is something in the back of my mind thinking, yeah, is my employer really thrilled that I'm talking about that? So I'd be lying if I said that there's no, um, there's no conflict there. Um, but just in terms of the things I've been focused on and what I do, it's not something that comes up uh, the vast majority of the time.
0: And do you think that your role as a journalist, athletes must be very aware that you work for ESPN and the importance of ESPN as a company covering sports?
1: They are, they are. Um, it it certainly does help, but. At the same time, with this particular team, um, they have so much attention and so many people, even from my own company, coming at them that it's not like anybody's all that special. So... Um, I don't think that it's a huge a huge leg up and maybe I just don't take enough advantage of it if it is uh,
0: a couple of just basketball questions before we end here just because I have you in the studio what uh, what do you make of this was a controversy at the beginning of the season when Kevin Durant who was already one of the best players in the league joined a team that had won the most games of any team in regular season history what what, what do you make of this now we're more than halfway through the season this idea of a superstar joining an already great team and these see, these teams that just have groups of superstars on them?
1: Well, I think, you know, people always have this, uh, this question of, is it, is it, good for the league, is it bad for the league? I think a lot of people said that this is bad for the league, and in a vacuum, it is bad for the league. It is. Uh, There's less interest. Um, There is the assumption that there are only two teams competing for a championship. Maybe that's not true. I know that your Houston Rockets have something to say about that. Thank you for for that. (laughs) Hey, they've been looking great this year. Uh, But I think you have to look at the broader picture, and that is... By restricting the movement of superstars that the NBA has done, this weird anxiety uh, that the owners have that you might have to grovel at the feet of a superstar. So let's just put in a bunch of incentives and restrictions to make sure and without getting too far in the weeds, the people listening, if they don't know, should know that players who are drafted by a team, you know, it's decided by a ping pong ball bounce, are going to be on that team for seven years. And that's just how the system is set up. And um, there's so much incentive that you have to re-sign. Steph Curry has his contract coming up. He's going to be uh, giving away well over $70 million or giving that up guaranteed if he leaves for another team. So by setting up this system, the NBA has created a scenario where you can't really spread the wealth around in a way that's logical. You're just going to have guys like Anthony Davis, a great player in the New Orleans Pelicans who are a horribly run franchise, uh, he's just going to take the money and he's just going to probably squander a lot of his career there, and he's not going to join a different a different team. He's not going to join forces. Guys on teams that are going nowhere who are superstars aren't going to join forces to really battle the super team force of the Warriors. So the way that I look at it is, um, yeah, probably bad for interest in the league um, in a vacuum, but the league should also, as opposed to learning the wrong lesson from this, And trying to further restrict player movement, which I think in some ways they've done, in some ways they want to do, uh, the lesson is actually to go the other way. That's my feeling on it.
0: Do you feel when you're watching coaches in today's NBA interact with superstars, what is that power dynamic? I mean, you have someone like Steve Kerr, who's one of the most respected coaches in the NBA, a guy who's been respected in the NBA for a long time. And he is ostensibly the coach of – Two of the five best players and four of the 20 best players in the NBA. What is that power dynamic like at a team like the Warriors?
1: Uh, You'll often see Steve after practices. He'll make a conscious decision to talk to one guy for a while. And you'll see him talking to Kevin Durant for 15 minutes after practice. Or you'll see him talking to Steph long after practice. And there's this idea that this guy needs some, uh, he needs some TLC, or this guy needs some focus for whatever reason. So that is the way uh, Kerr envisions uh, a lot of his role, and there's a managerial aspect. Now, I am not there for those conversations, but what I have noticed is that when coaches have these conversations with players, I'm always astounded because they 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 come off they they come off sounding a little bit. Like the way we do in the media, or the way I do, it's it's as stilted, it's as awkward. You would expect more of an intimacy there uh, than actually exists. But really, on a team, there are two different teams. There's the team in the locker room, and I'm making gesticulations that don't help the listener at all. But there's the team in the locker room, and then there's the team in the coaches' room because every team now has just an army of assistant coaches, so they don't actually know each other as well or have as much of a rapport, oftentimes as you might expect. But I think that Kerr works really hard to address that. And I think that the way he comes at that power dynamic, as you're asking me about power, is by being more of a listener and less of a dictator. Because really, unless you're Popovich and you've earned decades of credibility, that's all you can do.
0: Right, right. Well, also, I mean, this is work, right? This isn't, uh, these people didn't choose themselves to be best friends. They are at a job, and this is who they're working with. And I think that, We look at these people and we think, oh, they must be best friends, or you see actors on a movie set and you think, oh, they must be best friends, but this is work.
1: There's something about the uniform that plays that trick on your mind, Mm. I believe, where you see everybody, they're wearing the same uniform, the ball went in, they're high-fiving, those guys must be the best of friends, and that just – isn't the case it's more often the case that they aren't it's more often the case that it's like the dynamics that you might have at work i mean we don't have traditional jobs but i've had jobs where you go in there and you you, you see the cubicle and there's gary and hey you know that gary's a packer fan oh and the packers won last week uh so or on sunday you know it's monday you know that and you go like oh yeah your packers won and that's the extent of your relationship with gary you're not going to drinks with gary you're not going to eat with gary that is the average NBA relationship. It's just like any work, uh, work relationship, and maybe some tensions are exacerbated by, unlike with Gary, you're going to have to be flying around the country with this guy. I mean, that's really something uh, that, that, that has an impact. But the average NBA relationship is not a friendship. It just isn't. Do you think
0: that when all is said and done with this team, or I should ask, right now, when this team is playing their best, is it the best basketball team you've ever seen play?
1: It's the most talented Basketball team i have ever seen um, or known about. Probably the most talented one that's ever existed. In terms of how they play, there's something, uh, there's a je ne sais quoi. Uh, I I can't identify it, but it's not there. It, it was there early in the season on last year's team. I, I don't feel like it's there for this team, even if by the numbers and by all rights, they're ranked number one in offense, number one on defense. There's just not a feeling that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think. I would need that very subjective feeling and moment to uh, to decide that.
0: Uh, last question. Uh, if you were the president, which I think we've established already on this podcast, you're not. No. Which warrior would you appoint to your cabinet and why?
1: Wow. Which warrior would I appoint to my cabinet? I don't think that there is a warrior I would do that with. I, I don't think. Now, they all have great qualities. They all have great qualities. I think um, – Steph is just so easy to work with in many respects he's so likable there's political capital in that mm. um, David West is very very intelligent and very well read uh, that, that that's great um, so maybe David West but i don't I don't look at any of the warriors and think that's somebody I would want running anything in many ways and this gets back to our conversation like about, Trump's cabinet in fact oh it's yeah <laughs> I guess that's the, uh, the the standards have been lowered um Yeah, but it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about when politics seep into sports. I think it's so strange. Uh, I I get it at some level, but when people want Steph's take on – the bathroom band in North Carolina because he has a big platform, I'm thinking to myself, Steph's a smart guy, but he's math smart. He's like engineering smart. He's not reading The New Yorker. He's not reading The Atlantic. This isn't part of what he does. So there's something a bit strange about just assuming because somebody's famous and you like them without knowing them, by the way, at all, uh, that they should have some sort of voice in the conversation. So I guess those are my thoughts on it. I guess uh, David West... Because he's actually engaged on these issues, and I don't even know. Maybe there's some uh, there are schisms because David and I haven't talked extensively about our politics. But at least he's invested, and at least he's interested. Uh, so is Andre Igadala, but Andre is so acerbic and cynical that I don't think I want him on the cabinet.
0: He's very funny, though. We can always use that.
1: Well, I mean, it's com- the, the two are related, certainly. I mean, that was Kerr and Igadala were talking about the election and the lead up. Um, and Iguodala thought that Trump was going to win, and he kept saying to Kerr that, yeah, you see, he's going to win. He's going to win. He's going to win. And Kerr's like, no, no, Kerr had uh, more faith in the American people than that. Um, And I think part of Andre, because there's a part of every cynic who delights in uh, something horrendous confirming your dark worldview, uh, enjoyed that that was the outcome and that was the upshot. So. As much as I love dealing with Andre, I I don't know if I want somebody in my cabinet who's secretly rooting for failure.
0: Well, I'm glad he's happy, and I hope he enjoys the next four years.
1: Uh, (laughs) His his taxes might get cut. There is that.
0: (laughs) Good for him. Good for him. Uh, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss an episode of I Have to Ask by subscribing to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a few moments to rate and review us. I'd love to hear from you, too. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at, ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com.